Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Honey. And today we are going to be doing a questions and answers episode because it was requested by members of our Discord who had questions about our personal practices, who we are as people, and things about science and the combination of science and spirituality, lots of stuff. So we're going to be answering those questions today. If we don't get around to your question, it's just because we had quite a few submissions and so we kind of had to go through and pick and choose. But before we do that, I'm going to let Hanny do our what happened on this day. So Hanny, go ahead. So I couldn't resist because today was the birthday of Swedish scientist, philosopher, and theologian Emanuel Swedenborg, who, if you don't know, we already have an episode on. He's a really interesting character, born in 1688. He invented a method of finding terrestrial longitude by the moon, new methods of constructing docks, and even tentative suggestions for the submarine and the aeroplane, all the way back in the 1700s. In Sweden, he started that country's first scientific journal, Daedalus Hyperboreus, and his book on algebra was the first in the Swedish language. Swedenborg published on cosmology, corpuscular philosophy, mathematics, and human sensory perceptions. So all the way from kind of science to spirituality, he's a really interesting character. So I definitely recommend looking into him. All right. So we're just going to hop right in to the questions. We have multiple different categories, but we'll probably just rotate through them to keep it mixed up and not too boring. Um, so we'll start with the first one, which is... How old are all of you? I can start. I'm mid-20s, so not, like, super old. Although I feel old because I don't know any of, like, the youngster lingo that people use. I am also in my mid-20s. I mean, I'm in the stage of my mid-20s where I've started to develop fine lines, to, to give you some context. <laughs> I'm also in my mid-20s, part of that, that weird Gen Zillennial group where I'm not a millennial, but I'm also, like, I'm, I am a millennial, but I'm also not a millennial. It's very, I, yeah, I'm not a millennial to millennials, but I'm not Gen Z to Gen Z, so we're just in our own own lonely little corner <laughs> we all understand each other yeah <laughs> the beauty of it all right let's go to the next one so this question came up kind of a lot but it was said in different ways and that was whether we face judgment in our field from colleagues or others when we tell them about our practice so i guess the way to answer this is do you tell people about your practice and if you do have you faced any kind of judgment i generally don't um i don't know that i would face a lot of judgment for it like just as a whole because where i live i, I think in the US, at least what I've inferred from you guys is that there's a lot more judgment against being kind of pagan. Um, there's a lot more kind of stigma against people who aren't Christian, maybe. I don't, I'm not sure if that's accurate necessarily across the whole of the US, but over here, that's not so much of a thing. That being said, it's just personal to me. I like to keep things private. It doesn't really feel like science in particular is not a safe place to disclose religion. And definitely I have religious colleagues. It's just that I personally like to keep things to myself. My professional jobs are the uh, historical education field as well as seamstress. Doesn't really come up at all when I'm at my seamstress position. <laughs> I have no reason to tell anybody from my workplace. It's not like I really keep it hidden. At my other job, however, it actually does come up a little bit more because I'm actually very well. I work at a historic church. So religion does come up a lot naturally and I'm also very like knowledgeable about various especially since a lot of it is surrounding specifically the 18th century founding fathers and a lot of them were Freemasons so I have a lot of conversations about various occult things and people sometimes it comes up where they're like how do you know all this stuff <laughs> I also wear every like if you've seen my YouTube videos I wear a necklace to Athena everywhere I go so sometimes people ask me about it and depending on how I'm feeling that day depends on if I, I tell them my sort of religion and my beliefs and I'm lucky that I live in like a very pagany area I don't really think I'd face judgment but I tend to keep it private I don't really feel the need to talk about my beliefs or religion at my work, I am a big proponent of like keeping your professional life separate from your private life just for the sake of, I don't know, mixing them tends to bring up problems in my experience. So I don't usually talk about it at work because I don't think it's relevant to like what we're doing. But I have had conversations like with colleagues outside of work where we talked about it. And I actually have a colleague who is like believes like super you know strongly or anything but definitely like has some new age thought about things very involved in crystals likes all of that asked me my you know major three astrology signs and was super into trying to figure out how that like works my personality so I have a friend like that I also have a friend who is spiritual in nature um, but they 
put like a very chaos magic spin on the way they describe like how they think spirituality works. They didn't describe it like that, obviously, but like the way they spoke about it definitely fit that paradigm. So I've like had conversations with them on spirituality and they know specifically that like I am an occultist, but generally I just say that I'm like an agnostic or <laughs> sometimes I'll go as far as saying I'm like a Christian, but I will leave out the whole like esoteric part of the Christianity thing. And it really just depends on who I'm talking to as to how in depth I go on my belief system just because of the complexity of it. But I definitely don't like go shouting it from the rooftops or anything. It's very much so a, if people ask and through the conversation, I get the impression that it would be safe to tell them I might divulge a little bit of it, but I just generally don't speak on it at work and so there's not really any judgment to be had you just reminded me actually I get something I get a lot just because the way I dress and look I guess is I get people asking if I'm a witch which I think is really funny because I don't call myself that (laughs) um but I'm just kind of like caught in the headlights like no but (laughs) how to explain It's funny because when people ask me if I'm a witch, just because I think, I don't know, TikTok and a lot of it it, before TikTok even too, that it's such a a well-known, at least nowadays, terminology for someone's like spiritual beliefs, witch and pagan. So when people ask me if I'm a witch, I usually will sigh and say more or less (laughs) because it's it does explain at least it's like, oh, it's a non quote unquote, a non-normative spirituality so i don't have to sit there and explain like i'm a hellenic polytheist and then people don't know what that means which is understandable it's funny because like when you do say something like oh i'm a spiritual person people they go to two things pagan witch or like new age practitioner and i always have to sit there and be like no (laughs) because i really consider myself more of like a practitioner of western esotericism which is like more in the grimoire tradition and the ceremonial side of things and so it's always hard to be like yes but like no (laughs) Like, there's so much more to it. That's always an interesting conversation to have because a lot of times they just don't care and you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Okay, next question. Why did you choose the field that you did? I never intended to get to kind of where I am, which is ironic. I've taken many paths. When I was in high school, I failed out of my AP chemistry class and I just went to go take regular chemistry. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to do chemistry when I go to college. And so I took AP bio in preparation of becoming like a biology teacher. That was my goal. Then I went to college and I took the introduction to chemistry and biology courses. And I really hated the biology course that I took. And I was like, this is trash because it was organismal biology, which is totally not my area of preference. And so I was like, I don't like this. I find it extremely boring. But my chemistry professor did wonders and really made it really interesting. And he talked a lot about his research, which was in like material chemistry. And I found that fascinating as well. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to go into chemistry. So I got my degree in chemistry, although kind of toward the end of it, I pushed more toward biochemistry because I liked how the two came together. The chemistry behind the biological processes, it's fascinating and it's the fundamental for everything that occurs. So I think understanding both sides of that is really important. And that was kind of what led me to the career that I now have. I pursued a PhD for about three years and then I actually left the program because it just wasn't the right fit for me. Academia was not delivering what I wanted. I didn't feel like I was growing as a scientist and I thought I could do better in industry. So I moved out of the academic field and into an industry position where I have just thrived doing lots of really fun research. And it's been a very enjoyable experience. So that's how I got to where I am. I've always intended to go into science. The question, I guess, was really just what kind. (laughs) Well, I guess for me, mine is a bit less clear considering like I generally have had on and off two to three various jobs. Nothing in my life has been a a straight shot in any sense. I've always been interested in history and in science. I grew up, I think every man in my family pretty much has a PhD in physics. My grandmother has a master's in chemistry. My aunt, one of them's a, a geophysicist. The other one has a degree in astrophysics and worked at NASA. So me being the one who's into history was kind of the odd one out in many ways. Uh, although like I've always had like a deep respect for science, obviously. I almost went into certain scientific fields. I guess for me, the reason why I never did is really because I am just so... I, I'm trying to 
figure out the right way to phrase this. I just thrive better when I'm in an environment where I'm my own boss in a lot of senses. Like, and my seems to draw, obviously I have a boss, but like I make my own hours for the most part and so various things. It's kind of, it's kind of weird for me to describe how I, how I ended up where I did. Yeah, very, very roundabout. I know that's not helpful at all, but I guess it's kind of, I don't know, does that make sense to you guys? <laughs> or am I just speaking to the incoherence? Yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah. Okay. Surprising nobody. I was a total nerd at school. I like. I just loved school. I loved, I loved learning. And um, I pretty much loved every subject, apart from maybe like art and music, because they suck. Sorry, guys. But <laughs> like all of the kind of academic subjects, like the, 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 the stuff that you can get your teeth into pretty much, I really enjoyed. And so I had a hard time choosing, actually, because... I was kind of very torn between wanting to do like either an English or a history degree or wanting to do science. I kind of thought, actually, I want to do something that helps people. So I want to be a doctor. But then I kind of started thinking about that more. And I realized that I really don't like being with people that much. <laughs> so I was like, OK, how how can I how can I kind of be in do something useful and and still kind of use these skills I've been developing? So I ended up choosing a biochemistry degree just because it's I think Astra kind of mentioned it is a really good degree to do if you love science, love biology, love chemistry, and you're not quite sure where you want to take it. Like it's a really good foundational for all sorts of things. During my degree, I fell in love with two subjects, microbiomes and also neurodegenerative diseases. So I was determined to myself, I really want to do a PhD in neurodegenerative disease, work in um, something with prions like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, something along those lines. Applied to about five programs, didn't get into any of them. Applied to one program with... Uh, infectious disease because the opportunity looked really good it looked interesting and it happened to have some microbiome stuff in and got that pretty much immediately and it was really well funded so that's how it ended up here and I think it was I wouldn't say necessarily divine intervention but it was a it was a good choice I, I'm, I'm really happy with where I am it's a really really fascinating field and um, I wouldn't want to do anything different I don't think so it all worked out for the best <laughs> I love that next we have which part of spirituality do you like the best? And this can be, I think, kind of, it's general, like very general, your practice or maybe your specific paradigm or just your spiritual experience in general. Like, which part do you like or appreciate the most? You all have to think about this for a second. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe that. <laughs> okay, what do I, yeah, what do I like the most? It gives me a purpose in a lot of ways. And I know a lot of times, anti-theists will be like oh I see this it's all about people just wanting to find a purpose or whatever but it helps me connect to the thing that is beyond me like I said everyone in my family is very scientific and all of them are also very religious so to me there was never any sort of conflict between the two of them and actually like my aunt quit her job at NASA just because of the I don't know, the spiritual nature of space. <laughs> she felt so deeply connected to it that it wasn't fulfilling her. So she ended up going into something that's a lot more spiritual and religious as a career path. Yeah, I don't know. I just can't look at the stars and not feel something greater. So my favorite part of spirituality is connecting with that, that part that's out there, but that part that's also within me. What I love about spirituality is it's the one part of my life where I can be truly authentic, like with the spirits. I don't know. It's just like there doesn't feel like there's any kind of judgment. And when I ask for help, like I can be very vulnerable in those conversations. I really appreciate that because I feel like in a lot of ways when I go about my life, it's not that I'm not authentic, but there's always some kind of thing that you have to put up or fit into um, within society. And it's just the raw I guess, experience of being in a ritual is something that I take great joy in. It's just being with the spirits and having those kind of conversations and also like their guidance in so many ways in my experience, like it has been very objective, even in like ways that I don't understand. Like we'll say something I'm like, are you sure? Um, that seems very like contrary to what I would expect, but it then like works out. I also think I really appreciate that like unbiased perspective because even myself, I can try to be super objective in my decisions, but I will always have inherent bias. And anybody I talk to and ask for their opinions, like they will have bias about which direction I should go. And I oftentimes feel like when I consult with my guides and the spirits, I am given like very objective feedback. Um, not always, but for the most part. So it's a combination of a lot of things, like just that raw 
emotion of being like super vulnerable and myself in those instances and also just how much they've helped me like navigate life those are kind of the big things that I really love about spirituality I think this is a really hard question to answer and I've enjoyed listening to your answers as well actually it's it's really hard for me to describe because I feel like a lot of it is just tied up in just the sheer beauty of the divine which I know sounds kind of lame when I I hear myself say it but just those really profound spiritual experiences I've had which I wouldn't ex- describe in detail they are so beautiful and awe-inspiring that it, it's it's hard to communicate in in human words it's almost like an experience of where the boundaries of your mind just kind of melt and then you reform you can learn something entirely new it's it's not something that you can put into words I think and it sounds a bit trivial to say that's my favorite part of spirituality but that's why I do it and that's why I keep doing it so that's the, the truest answer I can give it's so interesting that you say that because I think that's a big part of spirituality that people forget about is the contemplation aspect of it. And I think that's where a lot of the beauty comes from. Like you have an experience and then really taking the time to sit down and think about like what you experienced, why it holds so much meaning to you and like how you can use it kind of moving forward. That's a big part of spiritual like experience that I think people forget. And that can really add a lot of like depth and beauty and meaning into your life. Not to get super philosophical. <laughs> okay. Next question. Let's see. So how did we find each other and decide to do a podcast? I can basically answer this. <laughs> I had an idea. I've, I'd been thinking about this podcast for a while because in the earlier parts of my spiritual journey, when I began as an eclectic book witch, I was, it was always this constant fight between science and spirituality. I felt like I had to find a way to make them merge. And in, I saw so many ways in which science is being misapplied in spirituality and like nobody ever called anybody out on it as a scientist I was just like this is incredibly frustrating like I see these things being used so inappropriately and like I have the background to address at least some of them but I didn't want to do it alone (laughs) because I am one human and so I messaged Hanny who we had been on discords together for a bit and I was like hey I know you're also a scientist would you want to like do this project with me and she was like, sure. And there was a spell. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I know you're not a scientist, but you really love history. And I know your family has background in science. Like, would you be interested? And she was like, yes. So that's kind of how everybody got pulled together. And then it was just idea generation. I don't know if either of you want to talk about maybe like what your thoughts were initially going into it. But that's how it started. It was really very casual. Nothing like super formal. I don't even think we knew each other that well at the time. It was very much so me just like reaching out. Well, I remember, I think you reached out to me like a day or so after in a Discord. I like wrote this novel length response to someone talking about 5D. And I like went into like everything about like the history behind it, as well as like like, why it has no scientific validity. And then like a day later, you messaged me. That was my trial. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's probably what caught, you, caught my attention. Yeah. <laughs> I got the message and I was like, I'm flattered, but I really don't feel like I'm prepared for this. And I think I said that. And um, Astra was like, Yeah, of course you are. Come on. <laughs> so I was like, Okay, well, um, I guess I'm doing this. And it, it definitely was, it was not a mistake, but uh, it just came completely out of the blue. It's fun. It was one of those things where I just, yeah, like you both showed so much knowledge and clearly it was. Like, you're both scholarly in your own ways. And so that was kind of what I was looking for as people who had similar, not necessarily thoughts, but, like, ways going about researching. And I really appreciated what I had seen. But, yeah, Hanny, you just told to, like, send me that. I was like, save. I also don't feel prepared for this, but we'll decide. We've got this. This was a really interesting question, actually, that came up. And somebody asked, how has science impacted your spirituality? And then how has spirituality impacted your practice or view of science? This one is is tough. And I think I can only really give a short answer because it's either going to be a short answer or like a podcast length answer. But I think in terms of spirituality has impacted my view of science. It has definitely infused it with a lot more kind of awe and respect for just the systems and the the world around us. I feel like my my view of the world is a lot more holistic. And I've spoken about this before, but particularly with regard to ecosystems and communities and how kind of resources are shared and transferred between those I think there are lots of parallels to animism and spirit models so I think that's that's been something that's really interesting for me to explore in terms of the science impacting the spirituality I guess it would maybe be a little bit of the methodology although given that I don't do a lot of spell work maybe not a huge amount just practically speaking 
I think for me, spirituality has influenced science in a way of which I see a divine hand in everything, even in the smallest interactions. When I study chemistry on the molecular level, it is so fascinating to me. And I can't help but feel like there was something more involved like than evolution. I think I think I mean evolution occurred. Like I won't I won't deny that by any means. But I do think there was some kind of guiding hand involved. I just I don't know. Everything is so, it just works so well together. And when things go awry, it's because such an intricate system has spontaneously had something change. But like the intricacy of how your body works is astounding. It's really, truly fascinating. Um, even just the interworkings between like one's microbiome and their their own cellular body outside of like all of those micros. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. It's also been interesting because when I do a scientific research or like I read books about scientists like from history I also find it really interesting because now like as a spiritual person I often see a religious influence on the thoughts of people like scientists of old for instance like Isaac Newton and even Albert Einstein was influenced by by their beliefs their religious beliefs at the time Einstein's theory of relativity actually was partially based on things he believed. I have a book I'll talk about later that I think goes through this really, really well. And so also seeing that influence, I think is also a reminder to us as scientists in the modern era that it's not always in our best interest to separate science and spirituality. And one can kind of offer a different perspective, allows you to view something in a different perspective, maybe that as a scientist you would never consider and can bring about like very enlightening ways of solving a particular situation or an issue that you have. Um, so I think that's how science is, or how spirituality has influenced my view of science. In terms of science influencing spirituality, for me, it's mostly kind of what Hanny said, it's methodology based. So I just approach my practice from a very like grounded, as objective as one can be, <laughs> um, objective kind of method of testing and trying and adjusting as necessary. Well, I do like to follow traditions laid out in grimoires, and I don't tend to change things without reason. I'm certainly not against experimenting, and I've done it plenty in my own practice, where it's very much so a, here's the hypothesis of how I think this is going to work. I do it. Here are the things that I observe. Here are my conclusions from what happens. And then it's a revisiting it. And then, you know, what can I change to make it better, to make it more effective or powerful or whatever? Maybe it didn't go quite the way I had planned. So how do I tweak it to adjust and go from there? So that's kind of the way science has impacted my spirituality is just in terms of the method of which I go about doing magic. But outside of that, not much. Yeah, for me, I mean, so like I said, I grew up in both a very religious and a very scientific family. So from a young age, I've just always seen the material world as the the canvas of the divine world you know when I was young I, I would see the sunset and sunrise and I knew logically how it happened but to me it just showcased the beauty of God and all the multifaceted natures of God even now at work we were watching a bunch of Nova specials we were watching one on on deep space I just can't look at a nebula and just not see the divine. I just can't. I can't do it. <laughs> so I don't really, I'm not a very emotional person. Or I'm not a very expressive person when it comes to my emotions. So like I don't cry a lot at movies. But I cried at NASA. <laughs> I cried at NASA. Just because it was so beyond, it, it made me feel small but not insignificant. Or like even thinking about like, did the gods exist when dinosaurs were around? Was, was Athena out here? <laughs> you know. So even just from a philosophical standpoint, it's always fascinating to me. As for the reverse, I would say science has definitely impacted my spirituality insofar as you know being critical of a lot of things. There's there's several concepts that are very well. I don't know, very widely accepted in the community that I just don't. Not that I, you know, people have their own spiritual past. People are allowed to believe what they want to believe. But I'm also allowed to believe that they're not real. You're allowed so, to believe that they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Definitely science has grounded me, like Esther was saying, this this sense of, you know, keeping me from spiraling too, too out into the woo. I like that. Keep you from spiraling too far into the woo. <laughs> okay, next question. What is your favorite scientific fact? And then who is your favorite scientist or historical figure? I work with a lot of viruses. Love that for me. I have lots of cool facts <laughs> about viruses that I've learned over the years. And one is 
that there are roughly, give or take, a million virus particles per milliliter of seawater. So when you go swimming, keep that in mind, which means that globally, there are about 10 to the 30 virions in the ocean. And if you line them up end to end, they would stretch about 200 million light years into space. If you're curious, marine virus is, it's fascinating. That stuff is really, really cool. So look into it if you're interested in it. In terms of my favorite scientist, that would have to be Dorothy Hodgkin, who was the one that discovered the structure of insulin. And she actually won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1964 for her x-ray techniques that determined the structure and thus the important biochemical parts of it that like make it active so i just think she was such a pioneer in her field especially at the time i believe she went to like she literally had to fight to study chemistry at the university that she went to i think it was oxford if i recall correctly and then for her to just create like something so incredibly impactful on the medical field so many years later i have a lot of respect for for her pioneering work so the problem for me is that I used to work in a, an STI lab. So a lot of my, my facts are like not very safe for work. <laughs> um, did you know that chlamydia can cause blindness? That is, that is a little known fact. I, I, can't, I can't think of any other facts. Oh, there's three times as many cells in your gut microbiota, at least three times as many as you have in your entire body. They used to think it was 10 times, but they think maybe that's an overestimate. All the science has left my head right now. <laughs> Same. All science and history are gone. I guess for me, this isn't my like favorite fact or anything, but it's what's popping up right now. I guess combining a little bit of history and science is the whole idea of vitamin C, like lemons. So we did know at least that certain fruits prevented uh, scurvy from occurring. This was actually something that was known. However... <laughs> This knowledge was then, I don't want to say discarded or lost, because that makes it sound like it was it was done purposely. It, it, what was once common knowledge no longer was common knowledge. So before like ye old sailing days, like the 17th century and the 1600s, we actually knew that certain fruits seemed to prevent scurvy. We obviously didn't know which fruits necessarily. And so then, uh, unfortunately, that knowledge was forgotten but then relearned which is well you know good good for our teeth although i have met people who have had scurvy in the 21st century who are, are you joking for like, real living in america like i know who are like middle class you know working americans who've had scurvy <laughs> eddie's face right now is that is really bad how does that happen literally how does that happen I think like middle class, so you know, I'm thinking like not being like really poor and malnourished. They just no, they, on... one of them was I think a grad student and just they drank too much coffee and didn't eat their vegetables or anything. Yeah, yeah, it's honestly kind of incredible. I feel like that's a feat of mankind. Even <laughs> pizza has scurvy. vitamin C from the tomato sauce. Like, come on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. basically, that's pretty impressive. Oh. It gets scurvy in the 20th century. Wow, I I can't think of a favorite person right now that makes it a favorite person from history that makes it sound so bad i don't really have favorite people from history but like favorite i don't know groups of people okay who's your favorite group of people the victorians no not the victorians <laughs> although i did recently find a victorian that i didn't hate uh lewis richard farnell he's actually a classicist who likes to or who liked i don't know i used the present tense liked to sass other historical classicists and seems to be I have a marginal brain upon his head. I guess a, a, a character who I've been fascinated with for a while is Alcibiades from ancient Greece. Freaking wild man. Talk about double cross. It was like triple crossing people. Yeah, weird character, Alcibiades. He he was written about, uh, apparently uh, he like tried to seduce Socrates or <laughs> stuff like that. Like he was obsessed with Socrates. And a couple of playwrights have written stuff about him being ridiculous. And eventually he was assassinated or essentially decimating Athens and Sicily. Yeah. He also profaned the Eleusinian mysteries and got out of his death sentence by essentially condemning Athens to its doom. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He sounds wild like a wild man. <laughs> yeah, he's a wild man. Okay. <laughs> there you go. There you go. The Hathel's current favorite historical person. Let's talk about daily practices. So do we have daily practices? And if so, what do they look like? Not really. I mean, I do have like a vague daily practice. It's just not sustainable for me. 
really to do like a lot of Hellenic polytheists are really good or like at least appear very vocal about like oh on this day I burn incense to Apollo and then on this day I pour libations to Hera and Zeus and I'm like I'm not doing that my daily practice literally consists of me dedicating my coffee or tea because I drink coffee and tea as well tea specifically like all the time and so I every time I dedicate at least part of my tea to all the gods or a specific god that I'm like in their domain and I say prayers to Hermes on the train I have a little travel altar for Hermes that I take with me on the train yeah a lot of it is just me finding things that I'm doing that day and dedicating various parts of it like Hestia gets a lot of love in my house because I recently built her altar into the kitchen and I literally put the food in front of her before I eat it it's not anything like big or crazy but it's it's mostly just dedicating things that I'm already doing it's pretty boring I think for me it's it's, it's hard as well because because I have OCD and I had to I had to walk the line quite a lot between what is the stuff that I'm doing that is part of a daily practice and what is the stuff that I'm doing that is part of like a compulsive thing I actually I'm quite I'm quite anti the idea of a daily practice just in just for like arbitrary reasons I think that you should do keep up with a regular practice that makes you feel sustained and connected to whatever it is that you're doing but I don't feel like you should you should do it every day just for the sake of it that makes sense I know that a lot of people don't disagree with that for me it's really prayer a lot of the time which I know is quite, is quite dull Specifically, when I enter and leave my house, um, I also do a, a prayer to Hestia and Hermes, just in my head, because obviously my partner would probably go insane hearing me say it all the time. Also, I've recently picked up daily yoga, something I'm quite new to, but I've been studying the sutras by Patanjali just very, very, very slowly. What I used to do is when I did a daily tarot pull, I would actually sketch it out to analyze all the symbolism, but I don't really have enough time for that these days. So um, I just have a tarot app now and I just write down whatever I think about my tarot pull in the app. But yeah, it's it's just more important to me to kind of be doing stuff and not feel like this pull of having to do it because of whatever shame or guilt, etc. Yeah, I agree. I think I think daily practices are overrated in many ways because to me a daily practice is something that is just so inherently like built into your day. It's it is just like natural for you to do. For me, and this is something that I've trained over many years. So it is natural now. It did not start that way. But I have a set of planetary candles and I also have at least one packet of incense corresponding to a particular planet. So in the morning when I wake up, I actually set it up before the night before because I don't like to think in the morning. So I'll like put the stick corresponding to the next planetary day up at night. And then in the morning I have a lighter. I light the incense. I light the candle. I go take a shower to cleanse. Nothing fancy. I literally just get in the shower. People talk about like shower steamers and using corresponding soap. I just, I give a shower. That is literally it. That is the cleansing ritual. And then I get out. If I have time, I like to say the Orphic came to the planet. And I also have prayers dedicated to specific spirits and stuff that I work with I don't always have time and so sometimes that part doesn't happen the biggest like daily practice is lighting of the incense and lighting of the candle like that's something that I do daily it's very much so like a being honest with myself type of deal like here are the things that I want to do but it's like I have a job and I have hobbies and other things that take up time and so it's like what can I realistically actually do on a daily basis and the answer was light incense and light a candle <laughs> and that's fine like if and if all you can do is prayers that's also fine don't like feel like really practice has to be something super crazy I just think that's like kind of inauthentic honestly to have like seven things you're doing as a daily practice but that's a personal opinion so <laughs> next question who does the editing for each episode do you rotate or have one dedicated person it's me <laughs> fell is the glue that keeps us all together like i, ha- I have no Bella. idea she how we would survive so smart <laughs> yeah honestly uh, it's she she keeps everything together and it's amazing <laughs> yeah we all kind of have like our own things that we do for the podcast so like fell does a lot of the editing i do planning and i do like ig schedules and stuff and then hanny runs the discord honestly for the most part so we're all involved in kind of every aspect but different parts and you know it's it's a collectively run thing that we just do when we have time (laughs) this was an interesting question that somebody posed it's something that i think could actually use us on episode we've touched upon it previously but do you think telepathy is actually possible like communication between two different people's brains annie you have things written and something that you brought up specifically do you want to start yeah sure um so i think 
Yeah, it, 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 again, it could take like a whole episode if we wanted to like go deep and review it. We have reviewed a few studies about telepathy, albeit like very low quality ones and a few of the past episodes. So if you want to listen to a bit more, I think the psychics and the paranormal one, definitely where we talked about Gansfeld tests. But basically the, the long and short of all those studies that were reviewed is that there is not very much good evidence under a scientific controlled condition that telepathy is possible. And given this lack of evidence and the lack of an obvious you know, physical mechanism for it. I don't think that telepathy is possible in the sense that the kind of pop culture, like walkie-talkie sort of brain-to-brain constant thing is possible. I think that there are strange events that can happen. And I think, you know, you hear about people having sort of premonitions or, you know, hearing from somebody as something something happens. And I think that that is possible. But I just don't think that, you know, there's something that's biologically innate that can cause telepathy. That being said, there are some technological approaches being developed, which might make this possible in the far future. Um, but they're all things that require kind of hardware for communication. So I'm not really sure that this is going to be, you know, the next eon of humanity. Yeah, and there are some studies, like I found one study that I'll link below, um, where they looked at a mentalist and then their control was somebody who wasn't a mentalist this person like drew an image that was projected to them by another individual like honestly if you look at the image it's not really all that similar (laughs) so i think it's questionable and they essentially said that like people the mentalist had they used fmri and they said that the mentalist right hippocampus region was activated whereas in the control it was the left hippocampus region granted this was one mentalist and one control like terrible study size and i definitely wouldn't like fully conclude anything from that. I don't really think telepathy is actually a thing. I think a lot of it is the power of suggestion and cold reading. Like honestly, our ability is just kind of innately read other people. And I think it happens more with people that you're close to that you just have a better understanding of. You're more able to accurately kind of read how they feel in a situation or like that intuitive feeling when people who are super close to family, they're like, something just feels wrong. And then they'll get a call later confirming that something happened. I just think that's natural kind of intuition. I don't really think there's anything spiritual or any kind of telepathy happening. Belle, what do you think? I agree with Henny in that like I I don't think it's like a, a constant thing, but I do believe I like what you said, like strange events do happen. Like I, I I've talked a little bit about this before. I don't really I, I don't really believe in empaths. I know everyone's <laughs> oh, I said it. I don't really believe in empaths. I don't believe in telepathy. I don't believe in psychics. <laughs> but I do believe that strange events happen. Like, I do think there are cases where certain things happen. Potentially, there's a way to... Potentially, it, there's a way that certain things can happen with a higher chance through certain ritual. Like, strange things happen when people are in trance states, for example. But I don't believe that it is something that is, like, honed. like Because every single test, every single test that has ever been done on psychics, telepaths, etc., have been failures. <laughs> and I think that's because it's not something that can be controlled. I think if it does happen, you know, there's a lot of various myths, right, uh, or of mythical creatures where uh, someone will show up as a portent to someone's death. It doesn't always happen, but it can happen. I think it's something like that where there can be, and I've seen it before, of certain things that are just unexplainable, but I don't think that they're repeatable. Definitely, definitely agree with that. That's very eloquent. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay, next question. Are there any scientific books you'd recommend that make topics understandable to the average listener? So I read this an age ago. When I'm saying an age ago, like this was before I applied for university. So I should probably give it a reread. It came to my mind recently because Ruby from one of our early episodes actually reminded me of it. The book is Bad Science by Ben Goldacre, and he also has a follow-up book, which is similar, called Bad Pharma. Ben is an epidemiologist and a doctor who writes at campaigns about clinical trials. And in particular, he makes the scientific method and how it can be deeply flawed very, very clear and easy to understand. It's a very entertaining read. He's got a very entertaining writing style, a little bit sarcastic. And it hopefully will not just help you to learn the kind of scientific facts, but also how to deconstruct studies by themselves, how companies can sometimes mislead you, especially um, in pharmaceutical companies. And it's it's just a really, really great read. I would recommend it to anybody. Also, if you like mushrooms, like me, there's a book called Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, which is really good. It's about, um, it's by an ecologist and it's about mushrooms and mycelia. But it has a lot about kind of community interactions, the kind of interdependent nature of ecosystems. And it's, it's very philosophical in its writing. So I would really, really recommend that if you're interested in the kind of spiritual intersection. 
The Disappearing Spoon by Sam Keen is a book that I also read like a long, long time ago. But it's all about stories from history surrounding the periodic table and the periodic elements. It's really funny. He has some really great stories. One of my favorites is like he starts the book off with by talking about mercury and how like it was used to use in thermometers and stuff when they would break. He would just like hold the mercury in his hand and watch it like you know, move around and stuff. Don't recommend doing that, but he has a story about it. It's interesting. But the way he presents this information is fascinating. It's really funny and it's really educational. And some elements have some crazy stories. I just think it was a really overall funny read that's really accessible. I also just finished reading recently a book called E equals MC squared, a biography of the world's most famous equation by David Bodanis. And it basically runs through like where science was before the equation came into the picture, how it came into the picture, the influence of beliefs in its creation, and then also the creation of some very influential scientific theories and basically how massively Einstein's equation has influenced our understanding of science. I think it's written in a very accessible way, and he keeps the science understandable. It's not super academic. I found it like a really good overall summary, and there's a lot of really interesting history about Einstein as well. So it's a great biography. Highly recommend giving it a read. You'll get an indication of kind of maybe how shitty science was back in the day, too. It's very real in that, that way. I'm also at the moment reading a book called Immune, A Journey into the Mysterious System That Keeps You Alive by Philip Detmer. This is a book that actually was published within the last year, and my family got it for me because they all know I love science. I am not an immunologist, so this has been a really fascinating read. I've learned a lot in many sections, and he approaches it in a very grounded and also simplistic manner. I will say that the simplicity of the science, like it's more complex than what is presented, of course, as is everything, but it gives you a baseline understanding, which I think is really helpful in a time when understanding the basics of the immune system is like, will be a really useful skill for kind of the general population. I also, we were talking about this earlier and this book popped into my mind, kind of similar to The Disappearing Spoon is a book called Napoleon's Buttons. It's essentially a book about 17 molecules that changed history. It's fascinating. One of the things to talk about is like scurvy. They talk about the tin in Napoleon's Buttons, capsaicin and like heat and how all of that came about and how it was so popular on the spice market and the history behind kind of all of these, these seven molecules. It's absolutely fascinating. It's written in a very humorous manner, very easy to understand. And I like I really love that book. It actually was very transformational when I was a child. So give that one a read too. Those are kind of my recommendations of books that I've read that I really enjoyed. I actually have a couple. Yay. I, yeah, I know, I know. I do actually do scientific reading for fun. The books that I would actually recommend would be The Hidden Life of Trees. Let me check the author's last name. It's German. Peter Wollebin. I can put this and this to Astra. I've put in the description. So this is basically a book that talks also about mushrooms and the interconnectedness of trees. Because I think for a long time, at least, ecologists didn't necessarily see trees as like, they didn't know how connected they were for a long time. And that was something that I think a lot of people knew, but they didn't, they could have you know, pinpoint it. Fairly uh, recent scholarship has shown that trees do communicate with each other and there are even tree friendships, which is a very humanized term for the word. Uh, Or there are mother trees. It's really just this trees sending more nutrients to the saplings that came from her or trees growing away from each other to not block out the sunlight as a sort of reciprocal relationship. And mushrooms play a very vital part in that because the trees communicate via their mice can i say this mice mice cellular mycelia and also Mycel- mycorrhizobial networks is that what yeah you thank you <laughs> thank you i can never pronounce anything that has to do with mycelia so that's a good book there's also a documentary that was just released unfortunately it's on amazon but that one's called The Secret Life of Trees, but they just did a documentary if that's more of your jam. The other book that I would recommend that's like less talk about like how these things work is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. I read this a long time ago. This book is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> both of, you can't see them, but both of the hosts just strongly reacted in favor of this book. Basically, uh, Henrietta Lacks was this mother, this black woman who was taken advantage of when she had cancer. And uh, we owe a lot of scientific development to Henrietta Lacks, Gila. So I just highly recommend the book. It was written by a journalist who got to know her children as well as her grandchildren and really got to know 
who Henrietta Lacks was, how she was mistreated, where the law failed, where she was failed by the medical system. It's just, and it's written in a very, it's written in a way, like she really got to know the family, right? So it's, it's not written in this sort of distant reporter way, but from someone who genuinely really cares. So I highly recommend those two books. Yeah, just to touch on that, like, we use Halo cells from Henrietta Lacks, like, even now in, in current research, like, I am doing work in Halo cells now at the moment. So that book, like, it is historical, but it has such a relevance on modern science. Like, we cannot give enough thanks to, like, the thing, the fact that her cells has been used for so many things, so many discoveries, and we owe a lot to Henrietta Lacks. Okay, maybe just a couple more questions here. Let's talk about... <laughs> Our responses to this question are like so us as people. <laughs> the question was, how do you manage your time with day jobs and everything? So we just want to just kind of go around <laughs> give our answer. Well, I have written struggle with a smiley face. Um, <laughs> uh, it, I think the most difficult thing, well, it's actually not difficult for me, but it, it, it's a bit funny because obviously I'm in a different time zone to the two other hosts. Fortunately for me, I work night shift, so I can actually just come into work a little bit earlier or stay a little bit later, and then I will just record during work. But yeah, it's it's a bit of an unusual lifestyle to be recording at, you know, one o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and then also having to plan experiments around it. Hanny is great. We so appreciate her flexibility. For me, my answer that I wrote was I attempt to have decent time management. I try my hardest to like make time for everything it works really well some weeks and it works not so well other weeks when everything just gets crazy I think the good thing is that like we record this podcast because we enjoy it and we're so thankful that our listeners like your understanding of the fact that we do have like jobs and lives outside of this podcast I work a full-time job Hanny works a full-time job she's a PhD student like Fel works a full-time job we are all busy outside of this we have hobbies and stuff so it's really just something we do because we enjoy it and finding the time can sometimes during weeks be difficult and so if an episode doesn't come out like it's just because we've had a busy week and we're busy so we do appreciate your understanding of patience when we take a break when things get super hectic I simply just said lol um <laughs> i don't know i have adhd so it's very hard for me sometimes to sit down and record for an hour that's a big ask so oftentimes like i have a little if thing if you ever if we were to ever record me it would just be me like futzing around with random things yeah i don't know i've gotten recently into this to swing the into the swing of things now that i have my hours at my job are, are more regular there's a lot of times where like i come home from work and i'm still working but i'm working on something else that's not you know related to that I don't know. I wouldn't do it if I didn't get something out of it, though. So that brings us to the next question that was kind of related to this. Like, how do you prepare for when we record an episode? I mean, I think the honest answer is a lot of us are like doing it quite last minute. <laughs> but quite a lot of the time, it's like I will I will be in the shower and I'll be thinking about something. I'm like, oh, I've got I've got to I've got to write this down. I've got to talk, talk to a fellow and ask her about this. I want to get their opinion on it. And then it will get forget forgotten until like an hour before the episode. And I have to prep. But I, I do often think about things that will that will be interesting to talk about on the podcast. So generally, we usually pick the topic either the same day we record or maybe the next day, at least by the beginning of the week to give people time to research. I know I try to research throughout the week, but like Fel said, sometimes you just get home from work and you're like, I literally can't sit here and read like 20 scientific articles when I've already read like 10 today. And so sometimes I just don't have the energy to like research during the week. And so then Hanny said, becomes a very kind of last minute, like let me review, find some papers, like look them over, look at the studies, kind of enhance my understanding on things that maybe I'm not super confident talking about. So yeah, I try to space it out. Doesn't always work. Usually like, we record on Fridays or Saturdays, so the day of, usually in the morning, someone will draft up like an outline and people will add to it kind of throughout the day. And then a the couple hours before the episode, we're all in there like typing our answers and <laughs> adding the information that we've collected and finding a way to make a flow. So yeah, it's just the nature of it. We're all busy, so it works. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add. We've all kind of, I think, said you know, how we how we tend to do it. Yeah, sometimes I'll get really inspired and work on it. But oftentimes, it's like a very much like we're all in there. <laughs> a couple of days before a day before it's or day of even. It, it's very funny to watch us all. Henny types so fast. Sometimes I'll be sitting there. I'm like, Oh, my God. <laughs> how is 
you type me so fast. But I think what helps is that a lot of us like have some, like, you know, you guys have familiarity with looking over studies. So it's not that hard for you guys to read through them and get what you need out of them or know how to read them in a way. Like, same with me. Like, I know how to go into a topic. I know what is relevant and what's not relevant to look at. As much as I would love to look at the unique situation that was going on in this certain borough of New York City during this certain movement, like, that's not relevant. So it's learning, like, I think we're all very skilled at knowing how to hone in on the, I don't know, the the most important information. So somebody asked about the favorite episodes that we recorded. So what are each of our favorite episodes? I guess I'll go first because I'm first on this list. For me, I think it was the Built for Divinity episode, which I think was like our first or second episode. So it was, we're definitely still like fighting our feet. But just because I thought that it was like five or six. Oh, really? Was it that late? Yeah, because the fourth episode was the Magic of Research episode. So I think you have an amazing memory. But yeah, it was just really thought provoking. And um, it's still something that I think about a lot. I haven't really worked out how I feel about it yet, but I just think, think it's a really interesting idea. I also enjoyed the Ancestry episode. Mostly because I really like when we can get a balance between the kind of science and um, history side. I really love hearing Fell's analysis because I feel like I get something out of it when, you know, that I can't let really learn for myself as easily. And it's just really nice to get like both of your perspectives in um, in equal measure. I really enjoyed our placebo effect episode. And I also really enjoyed the Built for Divinity episode. And it's because I think both of those have a really good balance between the science and the spiritual and the historical, which makes it to me at least, a very enjoyable experience to both research and then discuss with both of you. I think out of like our series that we have going on, our occultists and scientists one is the most fascinating to me because it's been so interesting that we've already stumbled upon a couple of people that we were just like, what? (laughs) We didn't even like know you existed. Um, Swedenborg was the big one that we found that we were just like, oh my gosh, why does nobody talk about this person? It's really fun talking about these people and like learning about them and their histories and their impacts both on the science and the spiritual communities. So I think I really enjoyed that and those discussions with people. Yeah, I really liked the recording our ancestry episode. I think that was probably our most, I don't, divided is not the right word, but I think we had, uh, you know, we weren't always all in like 100% agreement or we all had different like viewpoints on, on certain aspects. Yes, duh. It was the Swedenborg episode. <laughs> I really liked researching for that one. I think that one, I honestly think we could do another one on Swedenborg if we really wanted to. <laughs> like, and really deep diving. I, but I'm just blown away by Swedenborg. That episode, researching for that really blew my mind. It was wild. We learned so much. Like, it's so crazy. Okay, last question. This was miscellaneous, but I think it'd be a funny one to end on. Do you pour your milk in the bowl before the cereal or do you pour cereal into the bowl before the milk? Okay, we're all going to answer at the same time. Okay. Three, two, one. Cereal Cereal before milk. milk. Oh, we all agree? I was like, I got to end this this podcasting relationship. If any of you still (laughs) have to put milk in first. Who puts the milk in the bowl first? I've I've met a few people and they're all weird. Cereal before the milk is the right way to do it. And if you disagree, we can no longer be friends. Uh, (laughs) You're going to be removed from the Discord. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> we should make that a new role cereal before the bowl they, yeah, they, they get their own channel first. and they can only talk milk first, cereal first <laughs> all right thank you so much for listening if you've stuck around um for this whole q a we do have plenty of other questions that we will probably put in a later q a down the road feel free to keep submitting to the google form that's in the discord if you have additional questions that pop up and we can add those in as well but Thank you again for listening. We will see you next week. Have a great day. And yeah, bye. (laughs) And yeah, bye.